I'm Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Isnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today is a super fun interview for me because we have my friend Hal Rubenstein with us. Except for portrait painting and cruel work, there isn't much in culture that Hal Rubenstein hasn't taken on with relish. He's acted, sang, danced, taught high school English, and co-edited an encyclopedia on American film directors. He has written about film, investment, photography, movie stars, street musicians, and strippers, both sexes. Edited for speakers of the United Nations, waited on tables, and been a line coach. Run a catering business, and he's even a self-taught chef. He's also the voice of fashion, and we're going to talk a lot about that today. Hal Rubenstein, welcome to The Caring Economy. Hi. We've known each other for decades, and yet we've never really sat and have a conversation about your purposeful career. And so tell us a little bit about... I I mean, you said some stuff there. I mean, I'm more accustomed to doing stuff than talking about myself, but it's what it all really starts with or or even ends with is the fact is I'm one of those people who, as a kid, I loved going to school. I I, I just, I couldn't wait. I always loved going to school and maybe because I had great teachers and we'll talk about that later. I guess when I graduated college, I kind of considered the rest of my life to be one long extended version of continuing education. There are so many things in the world to be curious about and I've been blessed or cursed however you look at it, with kind of an insatiable curiosity about all the things I don't know mm-hmm. and would like to know better. There are so many people and, and doing amazing things and there are so many fields to extend yourself in. I mean, granted, it's only one lifetime and you only have five senses that there's only, so there's just about as far as you can go, but I'm gonna push that limit for as long as I can. I have never in my life at any point in my career ever said, I'm bored without doing anything about it. Mm -hmm. So I don't understand people who are, it's like, then why aren't you doing something better? I share that passion with you. I I wonder also as someone born from the Ohio, I didn't have what I think of as the advantage that I think you did growing up in the New York area. Was that also formative in your sort of lifelong pursuit of yeah, education? Very much so. You know, it's funny because, you know, on one hand, yes, we didn't have a lot of money. Uh, I, I wasn't born to, to wealthy parents, so I was born to extraordinary parents. In, in light of what you're talking about, it always makes me laugh when I hear people about, oh, I would never raise kids in New York. That's way too much, way too dangerous. They don't have grass. It's like, what are you talking about? The, 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 the possibility of excitement, of exuberance, of discovery in New York is just unmatched. Matchable. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, I, okay, you're missing a couple of sunsets, um, you know, and maybe your lawn's all not, you know, is Central Park. Yeah. But that said, the possibility of stimulation, the possibility of, 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 of opening up kids to a world beyond their own, beyond their own lot is is incredible i i grew up going to museums i grew up going to the theater there was there, there wasn't an opportunity for expansion that my parents did not invest in and it didn't cost and it wasn't about costing a lot of money but mm. it was about realizing that there's a world out there that's a lot different than you are mm-hmm. and that's that also has to do too with if you live in new york city and any of the boroughs it doesn't matter which one of the five you are constantly surrounded by people unlike you it forces you to sort of explore 
like other cultures. And when you watch people behaving in a different way or speaking in a different language or, 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 or not looking like the, like, like the people who live on your block, yeah. Um, yeah, you could either turn away in fear, though I don't really know anybody who did that. Yeah. To me, everybody kind of reached out yeah. to, to find other people. Um, so let's go back, though. You talked about yeah. teachers briefly and how informative they were. But how did you make it into a world of writing and publishing and fashion and build your name? There must have been quite a bit of work along the way. Yeah, th there was. But it's also there are things that, that do come naturally to you. I think my mom, who was very, very smart. My mom actually graduated high school when she was 15. Uh, but she had immigrant parents who weren't sort of aware of the level of her intelligence. However, my mom taught me how to read when I was three. Mm. Uh, probably because I think she was just bored with a baby who wouldn't really talk very much. So I, so I was both reading and loquacious at a very, very young age. I was fascinated by the written word. Oddly enough, as a kid, I didn't read fiction. I didn't understand why anybody would want to read something that wasn't true. Mm. Uh, when there were so many amazing things about the world around me. So I would read geography and I would read biography and I was, I was just obsessed with history. And I think the sort of th that, that desire that, that, that the reportage that's, that's in all of those things, the whole idea of research of discovering this information about the world you live in just I kind of got in under my skin from a very young age. I started to write. I think the problem, I know it's an odd word to use a problem but I, writing came so naturally to me that I didn't think it was a gift. I thought that like when you're in school, they teach you that two and two is four, you know, and that, well, there's some of the population believes otherwise, but the world isn't flat. Um, and that I just assumed everybody knew how to write it, you know, a simple declarative sentence and put together a composition. I mean, honestly, it wasn't until I started teaching high school. Right. Um, so I was like, like you know, 17 years old or 18 years old that, and I swore I was going to be that teacher who gave everybody great marks. And I was unbelievably strict because I could not believe that people could not get from one end of a paragraph to the other. It has never been an issue for me to either express myself either orally or, or with the written word. It's always been very simple, simply because I just have a very clear path to my thoughts. That said, Yes, it does take a lot of practice to be to become a good writer. For that, I have to thank a number of people. I was very blessed to have incredible teachers, both in school and then along the way in my career, who just helped shape the way to put together the proper thoughts, to how, to, how to write with for maximum impact, mm -hmm. um, how to channel things that I thought were important in my writing. I love irony. I love humor. Uh, I, I think basically you can get across any point as long as you put it over in an uplifting manner, in a manner that entertains people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so key to writing and, and, and to getting and to getting your voice across is that it is essential to entertain people. Yeah. And you add the skill to curiosity of which... I am, <laughs> I'm obsessively curious. Mm. Uh, and it just seemed natural to be able to do that. That said, I probably did everything else in the world before I became a writer. So you were informed and it's Because I fought a tooth and nail. But I think one of the problems with writing is that it's just, it's, it's an incredibly lonely profession mm. in the sense that when you actually sit down to write, you cut the rest of the world out. I cut my husband out. I cut my dog out. Mm. I, I, you just, you can't, talk to anybody else because it's just you i'm not a smoker but when i finish a piece of writing like you've just described the process of 
I just want to light up a cigarette and reread what I wrote. Some of these collaborators, uh, teachers, mentors along the way, for our readers who don't know, I'm just going to talk about the magazine format alone. You were writing with yeah. Yorker and the Edge of Nightlife, Malcolm Forbes' Egg magazine, you were editing at Warhol's yes. interview. What were those personalities and those publications like? people who were the most exciting for me was, was a woman named Annie Flanders who created Details Magazine, mm -hmm. even more so than Interview. Um, I mean, Andy, Andy you know, uh, Andy is, of, uh, is, of course, the sort of, you know, the godfather of the of Interview Magazine, but he really didn't do a whole, by the time I got there, he really didn't do a whole lot in terms of day-to-day -day, day -day publications, or he certainly didn't teach me anything as a journalist. Uh, I mean, it was interesting to watch watch a public personality and 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 watch his machinations in public. Um, I, I liked his magazine. Let's just say I liked his magazine more than I liked him. Mm -hmm. However, let's go back to Annie Flanders, who created Details, and when Details became the Bible of downtown, when downtown was becoming downtown in New York City in the eighties. And Annie decided to create this magazine that of everything that was new and fresh. And we so those of us who work went to work for Annie so believed in her that we actually worked for two years on IOUs mm. until the magazine took off because her 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 curiosity her her eagerness to always look past the obvious as to what else is making what else makes these people tick. What else, what, what else is there out there that we can find out that other people don't know? Where is that designer, that other person who, who everybody's talking about? Who's the next one coming up? Or, you know, here's the restaurant that everybody's flocking to over here. What about that restaurant around the corner that nobody's noticed yet? Mm -hmm. the, one of the greatest influences, of course, in my life was Malcolm Forbes. Mm -hmm. uh, Malcolm, at, at, when, when I... When Malcolm first approached me, I was actually, I was restaurant critic for New York Magazine. My column was Ali Manhattan. And I had also started writing for many other publications because that publication became so influential uh, as a, 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 my food column became so influential. When I was offered other jobs at other magazines, I refused to write about food. I said, I can write, a, you know, tell me what you want me to write about. Mm -hmm. So I was writing, I was writing about new spaces, new clubs in vogue. And I was writing about film for Elle magazine and at, at the Edge of Nightlife column in The New Yorker, which I had for five years, was an incredible, a incredible opportunity because I was able to write about anything that happened after the sun went down. Yeah. It could be a lover's, lover's quarrel on a subway platform. It could be an S&M club. It would be watching the moon ride over the Hudson. It, 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 it could be anything that, 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 that struck my fancy. It was an unbelievable opportunity. And, you know, Malcolm sent me this letter saying, I love the way you write about food. I want to know more. And I called him back and said, I wrote him back and I said, I could tell you in a letter, but why don't I just take you to lunch and I'll show you what it is that I do. And, uh, and he called me up and he said, okay, where am I taking you? I said, you didn't read that right. I'm taking you to lunch. And after that, he spent the next year and a half amassing every single thing I had written. He called me up and said, I want to talk to you about something. And I had no idea what it was. And I came to his townhouse. And as I walked past him into the dining room, I saw on his desk were stacks. It was everything I had written in the last year and a half stacked up on his desk. Wow. At which point he told me that he was interested in buying Interview Magazine, and if he bought it, would I run it? And at which point, because I am a good reporter, 
I said, look, I said, you have offered $6 million to buy interview. Uh, the, the brand family has offered 12. You and I both know it's not worth 12, but who would you go with? So you're not going to get it. So what's going to happen? <laughs> and he asked me, well, I said, you know, what are we doing here? And he said, well, have you ever thought of running a magazine? And I said, no, not really. And he said, well, if you did, what would you do? And I talked for three and a half hours after that, never stopping. Uh, and from that was the birth of Egg Magazine, uh, which he let me create, which he let me name, which he let me shape, uh, which he let me hire of virtually everybody connected to it. And I was willing to do it on one proviso. And it wasn't the salary because he actually, the first two salaries he offered me, I turned it down. But Malcolm was, besides being a brilliant entrepreneur and a brilliant journalist, truly, and I'm going to use the word again, one of the most curious people I have ever met. Mm. And he had a great knack of constantly asking so many questions, but he had this, this insatiable desire to discover, to learn, to absorb people. He would come into, he, he came into this incredibly young staff that I had, and they were like in awe of him and almost afraid to talk to him. And instead he, one by one, he would talk to them about what they're doing with their lives and where they're going and what they love and what they want to see. He got them so invested in their own, in, in their own adventure. That he, that he empowered everybody to do something cool. And, and in addition to that, I told him, I said, I'll take the job provided you teach me everything you know about the, about the magazine business. I want to know about business. I want to know about advertising. I want to know, I, I, I know, I, I, I want to know about how, construction. I want to, I want to go to the factory and watch them put the magazine together. I want to know how you make a story once again, that, 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 that grabs people. You know, that, that we used to have, uh, used to have a, what I call the, the, the three bump on the bus rule. When you're reading a magazine and you hit a bump on a bus, then, then, then you lose your place. If by the third time you hit the bump, you still want to go back to that story, you've written something good. <laughs> I love that. And, um, and Malcolm, taught, Malcolm taught me and, and my whole young staff how to do it. So when after, unfortunately, Malcolm had passed and uh, his family were very skittish about many, many things that Malcolm did later in his life and, uh, uh, and, and the magazine no longer existed. When I got a call from the New York Times, and this is the irony, I, I walked into the New York Times for a discussion. I thought about writing a story and walked out as the men's file letter of the New York Times. And that was my first job in fashion. I didn't bag clothing in, a, in, in, you know, in garment bags. No, that's where I started from. I was thrown into the deep end right at the very beginning. Huh. So it was an interesting pivot that you didn't foresee. Um, but no, then, not at all. I mean, I always loved clothes. And my grandmother who lived with us when I was growing up, like I said, you know, a lot of money was a seamstress. And uh, consequently, uh, there was a sewing machine always going on in my house. And after a while, I just of uh, walking by it. Uh, grandma said, sit down, and she taught me how to sew. So I understood that basically I would make my own clothes as a kid. My mother was a wonderful seamstress. Um, and you, I learned the, the, the sort of the, the, the foundation of construction and clothing and yeah. to appreciate it. I also, because my parents, like, like I said, we weren't wealthy, but my parents were incredibly fastidious about the clothes, the, the clothes and what they did own and the value of those clothes and to watch them and the power of clothes, the power of clothes to help shape a person's psychology and give a person confidence. Mm -hmm. I remember the first time I was ever in, in, in Milan and I, I'd gone to Milan right after I got the job at the New York Times. So that was about 1991. And I remember going to 
to Milan and going, walking down the Via Montalapodione on a Sunday. And all the stores back then, it's a Catholic country, all the stores were closed, but that Sunday was the promenade. Mm -hmm. That Sunday, it was every, every, every Milanese got out their Melton jacket, got out their flannel slacks or, the, or, the, or, or their best embroidered skirt. Men got their, their polished their brown shoes. Women had beautiful boots. And it was like truly like, in the, like in, the, in the show Hello, Dolly. They all put on their Sunday clothes. Mm. And to watch people walk down the street with pride in what they had on and the good coat, the good dress, the good shoes, and to see the way they carry themselves differently. And that's when you realize the, the, the sartorial power mm. that that fabric has to sort of, to extend somebody's personality so that other people could understand. And that's always what fascinated me more about clothes. It wasn't just about pretty dresses and isn't that gorgeous and that that's a great fit. It, it, it's the power of clothes to help shape an individual has always fascinated me. Ladies and gentlemen, again, today on The Caring Economy, we have with us Hal Rubenstein, celebrated author, writer, television personality, what should I say, connoisseur. Uh, Hal, <laughs> tell us a little bit about that. The, the critical eye that you've developed, that you were partly born with, partly trained to develop, how do you identify talent in young or old when it comes to let's stick with fashion for now? I think there are several there. I think there are several things you look for. You know, you have a position you now as fashion director at a magazine. And you get to issue edicts if you like, uh, if, if that's the way you want to run your division or, or run your part of the magazine. I never got it. Uh, because on one hand, I was a co-fashion director with, with uh, a woman named Cindy Weber-Cleary. And we had like 20, about two dozen people who worked for us. I would like people to remember me, not just fairness, but, but the fact is my, my name was higher up on the masthead than theirs. But my feeling was we were all equal in our fascination with the subject that at hand. We were all equal in that desire to, to reach out. To, to discover, to uncover, to analyze, to, to, to shape, to, to, to place in context mm -hmm. what, what, what fashion and what clothing means to, not on a runway. Mm -hmm. Fashion on a runway exists in a world unto itself. And in some ways now it's, it's never been more rarefied and which is why I kind of push away from it. But there's a reason why the two, in, the two fields of our culture that fascinated me most where clothing and food is that if we took away painting from the world, our lives would be less, but you would be fine. If we took away sculpture, the same thing. However, everybody, regardless of age, regardless of income, what demographic, everybody wakes up and says and asks the same two questions every day. What am I going to eat? And what am I going to wear? Mm -hmm. And because of that, everyone is involved in both fashion and food. For everyone, those, 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 two, those two elements of our lives are paramount. Mm. With food, it's, it's something not only do we nourish ourselves, but it's we're sitting across a table, we're sharing it with friends, we're sharing it with family, mm. we're, we're, we're going on a date, we're trying to get a job, we're trying to get laid, whatever it is, there, there are so many reasons to sit across. And part of that is how do we put ourselves together mm. to get people on our side, all of Almost all clothing is about seduction. 
All clothing is about seduction, not necessarily to get somebody in bed, though that may be cool, but it's really about to, to win people, to help win people over. Mm-hmm. And what when you talk about finding finding talent, it's those people who just, it, it's not a matter of whether they have a lot of experience or whether they have the touch. It's, it's whether they recognize the power that that clothing has, where they recognize how a designer connects to the public mm-hmm. or how a great chef will connect to the public. And I think that's really key. I remember once asking Karl Lagerfeld about a collection and I said, which was your favorite dress? And he said, I'll get back to you. Let me find out which one sold the most. <laughs> I love and that. here's somebody who may have been one of the two or the greatest designers of the 20th century, clothing designer of the 20th century, if certainly the most prolific, the, the, the most unbelievably inventive. He, he, he basically had a, he, he issued with, with the four different houses that he was connected to. He issued a different collection every three weeks. Yeah. And yet he understood that just designing doesn't mean anything mm-hmm. if it doesn't go into commerce, if, it, if, if people don't actually want what it is that you have, mm-hmm. if people don't, people don't seek out and seek out and, and, and strive and save and exult and in wearing what you've created. That's mm-hmm. otherwise clothing is dead. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you've done museum quality dressing, if a real person can't wear it. It's how do we fit clothing and, and food into real people's lives so that it has, so that actually it has an impact. Mm-hmm. It, has, it has an impact and benefits people mm-hmm. and benefits them and elevates them and excites them. And, and I think that's what you look for in, in, with, with, with the you know, younger people when you talk about talent. It's, they, may not have all, 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 they may not have all the pieces in place, but if that energy and that, that, that keen sense of observation is there and the desire to look and un- uncover and go further and to see how it affects those around them, those are the people I latch on to. Yeah. Those are the people I promote and those are the people I, I mentor. So let me ask you a question about um, technological platforms and storytelling. With these young people, with the curatorial eye, how, what say you about TikTok and other platforms? Is it, is it an important tool or platform for honing one's curatorial excellence? I can't deny the power of that medium to reach a certain element of the population, nor have businesses ignored it either. They find it a very they find it a very effective tool. We people who are older may not understand the quote the language of it. That said, you can't deny its ability to impress. It's incredibly entertaining. It, once again, I go back to that, that, that what I said earlier. One of the best, the, the best ways to get your point across is to entertain people. They will pay more attention if they're in a if they're if they're amused and in a good mood. And TikTok is entertaining. So I may not run to become a TikTok star, but my hat is off to those young people who have taken the time and invested it in the in, in invested in this creation because it's not the easiest thing to pull off. It's not just like writing a blog where you where, where you sit there and spew out whatever it is you want and you hope people notice it. No, there's 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 power in those productions. There's power in that creation. Most and and power, yeah. Yeah, there really is. And, and, and as you just said, you, you, you get the result. The, the, the effect is immediate. Hmm. Remember, you're doing this in 30, 40 seconds. Yeah. Well, I like you know, they're incredible commercials. 
Yeah, I like the fact that it's relatively pleasant. You know, they do yeah. a good job of filtering out hate and other things. It's a very, it's a very positive medium as opposed to something which, like, like Twitter, which I consider toxic yeah. uh, and, well, and avoid at all costs. Yeah, it also, uh, um, it also presents a full array of humanity. You know, yes, we're talking about younger people, but in fact. On TikTok, you can find anything and everything in terms of age and diversity, um, which leads me to yeah. your your latest startup, the Happy Grown Up. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. I mean, as somebody who's over, way over fifty, because of the youth obsession that that our culture has, it's 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 weird. It's weird, as you know, as somebody who's loved fashion, uh, you know, and 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 loved food my whole life, to watch. You know, clothing being sent down a runway on girls who were 17 years old who couldn't possibly afford any of this stuff. When 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 you look and you look and then you realize, you know, I, I I consult for different houses and different jewelry and accessory accessory houses as well. And you know, and and the reality is when you acknowledge them, like I'm working with with one brand right now, we're changing their entire website. They impact everything. Why? Because who is going to afford a a three thousand dollar bangle? Is it a 17-year-old girl or a 45-year-old woman? Hmm. So shouldn't that 45-year-old woman see something that relates to her life if yep. you want her to actually buy this? Hmm. It's when you realize that, that people over the age of 50 control about 75% of the disposable income in our country and about over 80% of the household income in our country, and yet there is so much attention paid to showing anti-aging creams on women who have no wrinkles or, 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 or showing 24-year-olds driving Mercedes-Benzes when, frankly, young people have the faintest interest in buying an automobile. Are getting There's a driver's license. <laughs> yes, they don't. I mean, look, when I was 16, everyone, anyone of my age, when you were 16, it was nothing more important than getting your learner's permit. It was Correct. epic. It was Correct. everything. Liberation. Getting that driver's license—that was—that was—that was like that was like the ticket to Oz. Mm -hmm. And now, I mean, the kids that I'm working with at Spotify, they not only do they not own cars, most of them don't even have licenses and don't care. Yeah. Why? Because they just said there's Uber. There's other ways to get around. It's it's not an automobile is not a is not a symbol of maturity to them. They have mm -hmm. other signposts. So the and, happy grown up is is meeting that demand. But but grown-ups, but you know, we grown-ups, yes, we still love those automobiles. We still love our homes and our creature comforts. We also need we also need instruction because it's not there in a way. And I call it okay, I call it new aging. That we're new aging in a way, not only that our parents didn't, we're, we're aging in a way that people didn't 10 years ago. I, I know very few people over the age of 50 who are actually retired. People, because we were we were lucky enough to forge careers that were not about solely bringing home a paycheck, but were also about satisfying satisfying ourselves in terms in, in, in terms of our, our 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 obsessions and our loves and our talent. And so, why would you want to give up something you love to do to do some, to do something you like less? If if you want to be if you're willing to take the time to be healthy to learn how to eat a different way and exercise a different way to, to, to just really listen to your body. I'm not, I'm not guaranteeing you a long, a long and happy life. I don't have that kind of power, mm. but on a daily basis, you could have a, you could have a stronger, richer life 
If, if you really if, if you really take pride in being 56 or 64, as opposed to wishing you were 37, you can wish you're 37 in the confines of your own bedroom. But, but, but the reality is when you walk out there, you need to square your shoulders, you know, push your hips in, tighten your butt and walk and stand tall and be happy. Be happy about who you are at that age. Because frankly, look, you got up this morning. You woke up. How bad a day could it be when you consider the alternative? Right. Um, so I just I, I and when you see all these, you know, the, the people who I'm interviewing, incredible people, where Damon John, Mindy Grossman, Norma Kamali, just all these people, Beth Ann Hardison, people who, who are doing incredible things with their lives at 50 60 70 it's it's like yes this is a time for celebration it's a time for celebration of every generation New and way. i want to be in charge of this of the, these generations over 50 because no one is doing it you mm -hmm. can't find it i mean aarp it's there but it's there mainly to sell insurance okay and yeah and i buy their insurance and it's it's a blessing and i'm on medicare so there you go which by the way is brilliant <laughs> but but it's there's more to life when you're over 50 when you're over 60 than medicare yes there you know there's still great pleasure to be had there's great loves to be had when people want to and, follow you or be in touch or know more is it happygrownup.com or how does it would be the happygrownup.com we're not there yet uh we're we're, we're about we're I'd say maybe, I think hopefully springtime, but maybe even sooner than that. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you, I, I'm, they, I, I certainly will announce it in Facebook for which I have, you know, thousands and thousands of followers. Mm -hmm. uh, I will, I, we will announce it on Instagram and Instagram story as, as many places as I possibly can. I do feel a responsibility in the sense that I was blessed. I was incredibly blessed going back to the fact I was blessed from the very beginning of my life, not with money, but I was blessed with, with, with love and caring and education. I had extraordinary parents to have not just great parents, but great teachers to be able to choose a career that I found fulfilling, to be able to have the time and the wherewithal and the connections to be able to, 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 do charitable, to do charitable work, to be able to give back for people who were not as blessed as I was. So that's, that's um, whatever the whatever the physical or, or challenges that I might have had in my life, I've managed to do the best with them as well. And I, I want other people to be able to be as excited to get up in the morning as I am. Well, that's admirable. One last question on that very point is um, I've observed in you through these decades, a ability to take your curatorial excellence, your your savoir faire and blend it with purpose for uh, to benefit others. When I think about two of the most iconic events that I've ever attended in my life, it would be certainly <laughs> your Think Pink party and then one of the morning <laughs> parties that you did. And, you know, they turn a profit, maybe some are less profitable, more profitable than others, but they had incredible impact. They set the bar. I wonder how you did it, how you do it. Do you have a team of like-minded people? Do you just have a burning passion to make that difference in these cases for LGBTQ or AIDS related causes or just plain old fun, but how do you do it? I think it's, I think it's, I, I think it, uh, yes to all of the above, you know, as somebody who was diagnosed at a, at, at, as HIV at a time where I was told I had four months to live close to over 30, you know, over 35 years ago, I was lucky enough to have read enough about the information then that the medicine they gave me at that particular time, I passed back, I handed back and said, you're handing me poison and you're only doing this to assuage your guilt because you don't know what else to do. I'll, I'll try to find another path. 
why exactly I did survive, we, nobody will ever know. It may have been the things I swallowed, or it may just be dumb luck of that I have a body that fights it off. That said, I am not ungrateful that I am still here. But mm. one of the things I did learn very early on, and this was, and again, we'll go back to Annie Flanders at Details. We'll go back to Malcolm, Malcolm at Egg and all these people who threw events and threw parties, is you want people to get on your side, make them happy make them happy you want money out of their pockets entertain them okay you can go there begging for it and tell them a sob story and yes they'll write you a check but how much better is it if you throw an event that everybody finds memorable not only does not only do you get the immediate check not only do you get the immediate amount of money but you also hopefully ignite other people you ignite other people you get them excited too because yeah. suddenly your cause your cause is connected to something that that that, that fulfills them, yeah. and then take that money and give it. Get, and you know, when we had uh, when we had the Fund in the Sun Foundation, over the course of ten years, we were able to, to give away over a million dollars to grassroots charities that didn't have the fundraising infrastructure to to actually raise money on their own. And we we mainly focused we focused on LGBT, but we also sp spoke we also are it was 50% LGBT and 50% children with disabilities and, and children who were challenged. To raise that money to be able to go to a camp for for for, for underprivileged kids, poverty level kids who were who are HIV positive by birth. And to be able to stand in front of them as an as an HIV as, as a grown HIV positive male. Remember, these are these are these poverty level kids basically grow up in matriarchal societies. Mm -hmm. Dad's gone. You know this when you when when you when you apply yourself to charitable causes that are worthy, that matter, is it's it's almost selfish in, in how much you get back. It, and, and so I can't understand why anybody wouldn't want to do that, but to induce people, and I'm going back to that word seduction again, to seduce people to do this is, is that way is you beckon them. It's, it's like, it's like the witch. It's like being the good witch in Hansel and Gretel instead of a bad witch. Well, Hal, you have always inspired me. You've inspired me today. And I know you've inspired our listeners. I want to thank you again, ladies and gentlemen, this is with Toby Usnick with Hal Rubenstein, celebrated author, television, personality and fashion icon and humanitarian. So Hal Rubenstein, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're so welcome, Toby. Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at T Usnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing The Caring Economy with your friends and colleagues.